Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. Glad you can join me today as we study the Come Follow Me curriculum for July 27th through August 2nd. Today we'll be discussing Alma chapters 39 through 42. Well, as you can see, I remain in the U.S. I'm not sure when I'll get back to Hong Kong. My flight has been canceled, but for now, I'm just enjoying things here. I know in Hong Kong, they've experienced another wave. Church has been shut down again, and uh, it seems like the whole world continues to struggle with this virus. Hopefully, something will happen soon. Uh, I think all we can do at this point is just pray for a miracle that we'll get back to our normal lives sooner rather than later. But in the meantime, I'm certainly enjoying spending uh, lots of time with my family, although working from home while my family is here, as I'm sure many of you have experienced, uh, is not the easiest thing in the world. Uh, But uh, enjoying lots of time uh, with them and hopefully you're happy and safe and uh, things are going as well as they possibly can. Well, this week we'll be uh, discussing Alma's letter, uh, or sorry, Alma's uh, discussion with uh, his third and final son, at least that we have record of, and that is Corianton. If you recall last week, uh, we had Alma's lessons to his two, we'll say more obedient sons, those sons that were uh, doing what they were supposed to. Uh, Of course, Helaman is his star son to whom he will be uh, giving the records uh, upon his passing, and who will take up uh, essentially the mantle that Alma uh, leaves behind uh, once Alma is gone. And then his son uh, Shiblon is also just this stalwart, reliable, continues to do what he is supposed to, uh, and really doesn't need uh, a lot of uh, additional encouragement. Uh, and then we get to Corianton. And uh, Corianton, uh, we get four chapters today all addressed to Corianton, and Corianton has some struggles. And it's interesting to notice the, the different ways in which Alma addresses uh, his, his two, we'll say, sets of sons. Those that are doing well, he, he testifies of Christ, uh, he gives the plates to Helaman, um, you know, it's much more focused on his testimony. But with Corianton, I love the fact that he, you can see Alma just sitting down with him and explaining to him in more detail and answering some of the questions that he knows his son has. Uh, and I think Alma sets a good example for us as parents that, you know, I've heard it said before, the only way you can treat your children all the same is to treat them differently uh, because they are different. And, and Alma's, some of his children are doing well. And so he says one thing to them, and Corianton is struggling, and so he gets a, a different lesson. And I, for one, am grateful that uh, Corianton was struggling and that Alma shared these things with him, because that means we have them now, because they've been recorded down, because there's some, some excellent stuff in here uh, about the plan of salvation, about the role of Jesus Christ, about justice and mercy, um, and we'll be covering 
those in today's lesson. So, but that's the, that's the background. And we need to, again, keep in mind during these four chapters as we study them, that this is a loving father uh, teaching his son, trying to encourage his son to, to choose the right, uh, to repent as necessary, uh, and helping his son better understand uh, the plan of salvation and the role of Jesus Christ uh, in his own life, because ultimately that's what we as parents are responsible to do. It's not just to teach a bunch of doctrine to our children, but to invite Christ into the lives of our children. And, and that's what Alma is completely focused on uh, in his lessons to his son, Corianton. Uh, but he starts with a, a bit harder of a conversation. Um, Corianton uh, went with Alma and the rest of his uh, and his brothers on a mission uh, to to the Lamanites and to the Zoramites and was trying to to teach them uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ and apparently while they were doing so Corianton didn't make uh, a lot of good choices he wasn't nearly as diligent and he left his missionary responsibilities to go after the harlot Isabel uh, apparently there is this beautiful young woman near the border of the Lamanites, and Corianton apparently went AWOL from his missionary services. He just left and went and after uh, this, this harlot, which is obviously something uh, you're not supposed to do as a missionary, to say the least. Um, and so Alma begins his uh, discussion to Corianton by, by, with the hard stuff, by calling him to repentance, by letting him know, hey, I know what you did. And it was not right. And now he's going to teach him, help him understand why the things that he did were not right. Uh, Verses 5 and 6 in chapter 39. Know ye not, my son, that these things are an abomination in the sight of the Lord. Yea, most abominable above all sins, save it be the shedding of innocent blood or denying the Holy Ghost. For behold, if ye deny the Holy Ghost when it once has had place in you, and ye know that ye deny it, behold, this is a sin which is unpardonable. Yea, and whosoever murdereth against the light and knowledge of God, it is not easy for him to obtain forgiveness. Yea, I say unto you, my son, that it is not easy for him to obtain a forgiveness. So, here we seem to have this this ranking uh, of sins. And... So we start with denying the Holy Ghost once it has had a place in you, uh, which I'll admit is a, a sin that I don't fully understand. Uh, certainly it requires more than just feeling the Spirit at some point in your life and then denying that. It's, uh, you know, this is the unpardonable sin. Um, probably the type of a sin that most people watching this video, certainly myself, I feel I don't need to be too concerned about because I'm not sure that my my testimony or my my knowledge and my experiences are to the level that this uh, committing this sin is even a possibility. Um, I hope so. I certainly don't plan on denying uh, the promptings of the Holy Ghost or the the witness of the Holy Ghost that I've had in my life. Uh, but I, I have a hard time believing that it takes anything less than something very very certain uh, in order to commit a sin that is unpardonable. And so that's that's number one on our hierarchy of bad sins. Uh, number two is committing murder, uh, murder of innocent blood. And then number three is what Corianton did. Now, I'm not going to be specific about what Corianton did because I think there's some debate as to 
whether what exactly it was that Corianton did that qualifies as, we'll say, sin number three on our sin hierarchy. Uh, one understanding is that the sin that Corianton committed that was so bad was that of breaking the law of chastity. Uh, that of, uh, and, and um, to go with, with that, the argument for that um, is uh, one that's uh, you know, frequently discussed among Latter-day Saints. We often say committing the impardonable sin, murder, breaking the law of chastity. Those are, as far as the order of sin goes, one, two, and three. And the, the doctrinal understanding for putting a law of chastity so high up on our uh, ranking of sins uh, is, is well articulated in a number of places. Uh, one of my favorites is in a talk by Elder Holland called Of Souls, Symbols, and Sacraments. And in there, Elder Holland stated the following. It is LDS doctrine that sexual transgression is second only to murder in the Lord's list of life's most serious sins. By assigning such a rank to a physical appetite so conspicuously evident in all of us, what is God trying to tell us about its place in his plan for all men and women in mortality? I submit to you he is doing precisely that, commenting about the very plan of life itself. Clearly God's greatest concern regarding mortality are how one gets into this world and how one gets out of it. These two most important issues in our personal and careful supervised progress are the two issues that he, as our creator and father and guide, wishes most to reserve for himself. These are the two matters that he has repeatedly told us he wants us never to take illegally, illicitly, unfaithfully, without sanction. So there's the argument as to adultery or violation of the law of chastity uh, ranking as number three. And I think there is a distinction between you know, breaking the law of chastity to unmarried people uh, entering into sexual relations with adultery, uh, where someone who is married um, and has already entered into those sacred uh, marriage covenants and relationships uh, being unfaithful to their spouse. So certainly, I think even within violations of the law of chastity, there is certain gradations uh, of seriousness. But Elder Holland certainly puts forward the idea and I think it certainly is doctrinally sound uh, that violations of the law of chastity, the inappropriate use of the sacred ability that we each have to procreate uh, is so serious because it has to do with this foundation of life. Uh, as Elder Holland says, the way we get into the world, clearly uh, going around murdering people, taking people out of the world, taking away their lives is something that we should not <laughs> by any means willy-nilly uh, go about doing, uh, just, in, just in the same way using the powers to give life to people is not something that we should be doing uh, outside of the strict, uh, the strict confines of the marriage relationship as God has, has clearly stated to us. Um, so it's possible when Alma is talking to his son here, uh, about the grave sins that he has committed that is next only to murder in terms of seriousness, that he's talking about the violation of the law of chastity uh, that Corianton committed while he was a missionary as he pursued the harlot Isabel. Now, whether or not Corianton was murdered, or sorry, was married, and uh, therefore he was guilty of adultery, we, we were not privy to those details. 
but certainly violations of the law of chastity, especially while you're on a mission and you should be focused on helping others come unto Christ, is no doubt very, very serious. But it's possible that it's not the law of chastity that, uh, would, that, Al, that had Alma so concerned, but it was uh, something else uh, that Corianton had done. And that was because of his actions, um, and it's even possible because of the things that he said, he was possibly out there uh, leading people astray, essentially doing exactly what Alma was doing while he was younger. Because um, Alma certainly tells us that because of his actions, uh, there was many people that did not, because of Corianton's actions, there were many people that would not accept the gospel of Jesus Christ as Alma and his brothers were teaching. Uh, and that idea is put forward in an article uh, called uh, The Sin Next to Murder uh, by Michael Ash, and that was uh, given about 15 years ago in Sunstone Magazine, um, in which uh, Brother Ash states the following. It appears that Alma framed his argument thusly. Corianton is guilty of leaving his mission to chase a harlot, either literally and or figuratively. This harlot has damaged many testimonies already, and Corianton's actions have also led some of the people to destruction instead of to God. Among Corianton's sins is one that ranks next to the shedding of innocent blood, which ranks second only to the unpardonable sin of willfully denying the Holy Ghost. Corianton's grievous sin, for which forgiveness is still possible, albeit difficult, is murdering against light and knowledge. To murder or shed innocent blood, the most serious of the pardonable sins, is to extinguish someone's life. To murder against light and knowledge is, I believe, in Alma's logic, to extinguish someone's testimony. So, Brother Ash is of the opinion that Corianton, the sin that was so severe that Alma is so disappointed with, uh, is not the violation of the law of chastity. Clearly, if Corianton was guilty of that, if that was a, a literal uh, going to the harlot and participating in things in which you might do with the harlot, obviously he was very disappointed in that. Uh, but the sin that is so difficult to repent of, uh, Brother Ash interprets that to be in verse 6 where it says, uh, murdereth against the light and knowledge of God. If you recall back in chapter 36, Alma had said uh, among his sins, uh, remember in this beautiful chiasmus as he was describing his fall and the, his recollection of the horrible things that he had done, uh, in verse 14 he said, I had murdered many of his children, or rather led them away unto destruction. So clearly Alma, in his mind, he associates you know, literal murder, the shedding of blood, with leading people away from the light of the gospel. Uh, you know, a, a spiritual murdering, if you will. And Alma recognized in his own life, because, you know, before he had his own conversion story, that's what he was doing. He was going around committing spiritual murder. And he realized how horrible, uh, he later recognized how, how terrible the things that he was doing, uh, in fact, were. And he spent the rest of his life trying to repent of his prior sins. It's possible that the thing that Corianton did that was so upsetting to Alma was the exact same thing that Alma did when he was younger, which is leading people not to Jesus Christ, but away from Jesus Christ because of his actions and perhaps because of some of the things he was saying or even teaching. Uh, let me share one more quote, and that comes from uh, President Joseph Fielding Smith, in which he said, 
I think the greatest crime in all this world is to lead men and women, the children of God, away from the true principles. We see in the world today philosophies of various kinds tending to destroy faith, faith in God, faith in the principles of the gospel. What a dreadful thing that is. The Lord says, if we labor all our days and save but one soul, how great will be our joy with him. On the other hand, how great will be our sorrow and our condemnation if through our acts we have led one soul away from this truth. He who blinds one soul, he who spreads error, he who destroys through his teachings, through his teachings, divine truth, truth that would lead a man to the kingdom of God and to its fullness, how great shall be his condemnation and his punishment in eternity. For the destruction of a soul is the, is the destruction of the greatest thing that has ever been created. So a great warning to us from President Smith, and this seems to be consistent with brother, what Brother Ash was saying, that the greatest thing, uh, the greatest crime that we can commit on another soul, second only then to taking that soul's physical life, would be to take away their spiritual life by, by false teachings, by purposefully leading them astray from Jesus Christ. And so I think, you know, we have to be careful as Latter-day Saints as we go about conducting our lives because of the added light and knowledge that we have, because of the covenants that we have made, and hopefully we are living uh, our, our life with the gospel, you know, on our sleeves, so to say, so that others know that we are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Well, part of the dangers of doing that is that if our actions don't uh, don't constantly live up uh, to the high standards that we proclaim to our testimony of Jesus Christ, then perhaps we might be in danger of, uh, of leading people away from Christ. And so we have to be extra uh, vigilant uh, because of the light and knowledge that we have, because of the testimonies of Christ that we have, that what we are doing, that our actions and that our examples are consistent uh, with the high standards of that message are consistent with our love and our testimony of Christ. Now, certainly the atonement comes in and Christ uh, through the Spirit will teach others and, 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 uh, and multiply our efforts to help us do the best that we can. But I think the takeaway from here is, you know, Corianton is most likely guilty of several severe sins, uh, whether it be uh, violation of the law of chastity or whether it be, as we're calling it, spiritual murder that is, you know, number three on the uh, hierarchy. Uh, let's just say all of them are to be avoided. Um, moving on to verses seven through nine. And now, my son, I would to God that ye had not been guilty of so great a crime. I would not dwell upon your crimes to harrow up your soul if it were not for your good. But behold, ye cannot hide your crimes from God, and except ye repent, they will stand as a testimony against you at the last day. Now, my son, I would that ye should repent and forsake your sins, and go no more after the lusts of your eyes. But cross yourself in all these things, and except ye do this, ye can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. O oh, remember and take it upon you, and cross yourself in these things. I think it's important to what Alma is teaching his son here is the importance of remembering that no matter what we do, God knows about it. And if we are attempting to hide or to cover our sins, uh, similar to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, as soon as they discovered their own nakedness, if you recall, their first instinct was, I'm going to cover up my sins. And they attempted to do so with fig leaves. 
But that did not work. God knew what had happened. And God always knows what's happened. If we believe in an omniscient, uh, loving Father in heaven, we also have to believe in a God that knows our weaknesses and knows our mistakes. And to try to cover up those mistakes is in vain and pointless. And therefore, our only solution to our sins is not to hide from them, but to repent from them. And that's what Alma is trying to encourage his son to do. To cross yourself in all things. To check yourself. To, 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 to be cognizant of what you're doing and to be careful of your actions. Recognizing that they have real consequences. Uh, verse uh, 15 and 16 then. And now, my son, I would say somewhat unto you concerning the coming of Christ. Behold, I say unto you that it is he that surely shall come to take away the sins of the world. Yea, he cometh to declare glad tidings of salvation unto his people. And now, my son, this was the ministry unto which ye were called, to declare these glad tidings unto this people, to prepare their minds, or rather that salvation might come unto them, that they may prepare the minds of their children to hear the word at the time of his coming. And so Alma brings it back from you've made mistakes, we all make mistakes, and we can't cover our sins. And the only way to, uh, to cover our sins, I guess you can say, is, is through Jesus Christ. We can't cover our sins by ourselves, but Christ can cover our sins. Uh, you know, the, the idea of kapor or atonement in Hebrew uh, in Hebrew teachings, kapor means a covering. Uh, when we take upon ourselves the atonement, uh, when we take upon ourselves and we covenant with Jesus Christ, we are covering our sins through Christ's mercy and through his grace. So the message, I guess, should not be that we cannot cover our sins, but is that we cannot ourselves cover our sins. Nothing that we can do, nothing we can find on this earth whether it be fig leaves, whether it be the size of our bank account, whether it be any actions that we undertake on our own, either by trying to hide those sins or try to make up for them in some way other than through our relationship with Jesus Christ, will ultimately fail. The only way to cover our sins is through the atonement of Christ. And then, so Alma is reminding his son here, that is the message that you were to teach this people. You're not supposed to be about committing serious sin yourself than trying to hide from it or cover it up yourself. You're supposed to be out there teaching other people how to cover up their sins through Jesus Christ. That is the ministry to which you are called. Now, Alma then recognizes that his son uh, clearly has some either misunderstandings or some apprehensions about, um, about the message of Jesus Christ. And so the remaining three chapters, Alma provides some beautiful teachings uh, about the plan of salvation, and about the atonement. And so as we go to chapter 40, uh, Alma starts to address some of his son's questions about the plan of salvation. Some of the areas in which he recognized his son uh, clearly has some, some misunderstandings. And so uh, let's start in chapter 40 with verses 7 and 8. And now I would inquire what becometh of the souls of men from this time of death to the time appointed for the resurrection. Now whether there is more than one time appointed for men to rise, it mattereth not. For all do not die at once, and this mattereth not. All is as one day with God, and time only is measured unto men. 
So Alma here starts by teaching him about the, uh, about the plan of salvation and starts, interestingly, with the very specific question about, uh, he spends a lot of time discussing resurrection, but here he's talking about this specific question, what happens before resurrection? What about the time between when our soul and our body are separated upon physical death and the time that we are resurrected. And he'll spend, again, a lot of time talking about resurrection, but Alma recognizes that his son has some question about this gap between the two of them. I think in some ways it's easy to conceptualize, you know, the, the grand end of things in which we are heading back to God. But what about that immediate time right after death, before the resurrection takes place? And then, so I love the humility at which uh, Alma uh, starts with this question. Um, and he recognizes that there's a lot of things that, uh, that he doesn't know, that this is a difficult question and the amount of information that's been revealed about this question is rather limited. And Alma recognizes those limitations. And, but I love what he says and he said, uh, you know, as, as he's addressing these questions and he comes up to it and he says, you know, in some ways it mattereth not. Um, you know, this is something that we, and this is an important lesson that he's trying to teach his son here, is that it's okay to have questions about the details. But we also have to recognize that there's a lot of these details that we are not going to understand, that we are not going to get in this life. A lot of these details are going to remain mysteries to us up until a certain point, perhaps until they even happen. But because we have some uncertainty as to some of the details, let's not let this uncertainty overwhelm our faith in God. If we don't understand the details, it doesn't matter because we can have faith that God understands the details. And he concludes this with, you know, all is as one day with God and time only is measured unto men. In other words, to God, this is all simple stuff. This is all very, very clear unto God. God knows exactly what's going to happen. It's only us men that are worried about, these, about this time thing, about some of these details. He said, let's not focus on these details that we don't understand. Let's leave it to God. Trust that God understands the details. And then let's move on trusting God and putting, putting our faith and trust in him and moving forward and letting, instead of being preoccupied with some of these details that we currently uh, cannot understand. Verses 11 and 12. Now he gets into some of the details that he does understand. And these are beautiful. Now concerning the state of the soul between death and the resurrection. Behold, it has been made unto me by an angel that the spirits of all men, as soon as they are departed from this mortal body, yea, the spirits of all men, whether they be good or evil, are taken home to that God who gave them life. And then shall it come to pass that the spirits of those who are righteous are received into a state of happiness, which is called paradise, a state of rest, a state of peace. And they shall rest from all their troubles and from all care and sorrow. So according to Alma, once we die, the righteous are uh, brought into a state uh the spirits of all men, whether they be good or evil, are taken home to that God who gave them life. So as soon as we die, we all return to God. Now, we don't know exactly what that means to return to God. This is different from the judgment in which we stand before God to be judged. This is something that happens prior to that because that is associated with the resurrection. And Alma is talking about the time 
between death and the resurrection or between death and the time that we stand before God to be judged. But he says that we are taken home to that God who gave them life. So the first thing that happens apparently when we die is that we are taken home to God. We have some type of interaction with that God that gave us life, with our Heavenly Father and our Heavenly Mother. We, we are, I assume, embraced by them uh, and, and we are left without any doubt that, uh, that they are there and that they love us. And now for those that have been righteous, uh, that being brought back into the presence of our heavenly parents will bring about peace and will bring about rest, as he says in verse 12. And I, for one, love that idea because this world is a place often void of peace. And for many people, there's very little rest to be found in this world. Now that doesn't, that's not a uh, promotion to go about making ourselves so busy that we exhaust ourselves. But I think anyone that is uh, honestly and earnestly striving to do the best that they can to grow and to improve and to become, uh, live up to all that they can, often finds themselves wishing there was more hours in the day, finds themselves uh, without much rest. Uh, whether it be taking care of kids, serving others, uh, providing for our physical needs, providing for the needs of your family, uh, serving others, serving in the church, uh, studying the scriptures, studying the things of the world, learning and growing. There's just a lot to do while on this earth. And sometimes it can be overwhelming and sometimes it can be tiring. So the idea that once we leave this earth, we are brought back into a place of rest and of peace, a state of peace, uh, to me is very encouraging. Uh, something that I, uh, in some ways, very much look forward to. Now, that doesn't mean I believe that once we get to that state, it's just going to be, you know, we're all sitting there in, uh, you know, lawn chairs while we're getting fanned by angels or something like that. Uh, no, I, I'm sure we'll have plenty to do there. Uh, but it will not be with the, the pressure that we face in mortality. It will be uh, with this underlying peace or this understanding or this ability to rest that I think sometimes in this current life is so very difficult to find. And again, remember, that's all brought about because we are brought back first into the presence of our heavenly parents. We are brought back to that God who gave us life. And it is that witness, that experience of being brought back into their presence that brings about that peace and that brings about that rest. And that's contrasted with uh, the unrighteous in verses 13 and 14. And then shall it come to pass that the spirits of the wicked, yea, who are evil, for behold, they have no part nor portion of the Spirit of the Lord. For behold, they chose evil works rather than good. Therefore, the spirit of the devil did enter into them and take possession of their house. And these shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And this because of their own iniquity, being led captive by the will of the devil. Now this is the state of the souls of the wicked. Yea, in darkness and in a state of awful, fearful, looking for the fiery indignation of the wrath of God upon them. Thus they remain in this state as well as the righteous in paradise until the time of their resurrection. 
So I read this to say that just as for the righteous, being brought back into the presence of God brought about peace, brought about rest. To the wicked, those that uh, Alma, Alma says, um, for behold, they have no part nor portion of the spirit of the Lord. For those that didn't have any part or portion of the spirit of, Lord in, of the Lord in them while they were in this life. For those that you know, put down spiritual things, that did not think to God, that were only focused upon the things of this world and didn't give a second thought about the things of the spirit, they were probably mocking those that were focused upon the things of the spirit. For those individuals to be brought back into the presence of the God that created them, that will be a harrowing experience. That will be terrifying because all of a sudden they will realize, uh-oh, I messed up. I put all my eggs in the non-God and the atheist basket and it looks like I put my eggs in the wrong basket. It looked like I made the wrong choice. It looks like this God figure that I had made fun of, had likened to a flying spaghetti monster, uh, to, to take one prominent example. It looks like that God actually does exist. It looks like he's real. And I made, and I chose to ignore him while I was in this life. And so for those people, they will be fear of, they will be in the state of awful and fearful, looking for the fiery indignation of the wrath of God upon them. They will recognize their mistake and they're going to assume God is going to punish me because they do not understand God. They do not understand the love and the grace and the mercy of God because they, they don't understand God because they didn't believe in him, because they gave no thought to him, because they made fun of him while they were in this life. And so they are expecting fire and brimstone. They're expecting to be punished. And so as they anticipate that punishment, as they anticipate the fire and brimstone that they sure is waiting for them, uh, that must be a horrible, terrible uh, situation. And in some ways, that is what we mean by hell. And again, that's not to say that God is going to throw them into fire and brimstone, but that's what probably what they're going to be anticipating because they will realize that they had made a mistake. They'd made lots of mistakes while they were in this life. And the biggest was that they chose not to believe in God. And so they're expecting some type of punishment and the anticipation of that punishment will be hell for them. Uh, verses 21 through 23. But whether it be at, the t at his resurrection or after, I do not say, but this much I say, that there is a space between death and the resurrection of the body and a state of the soul in happiness or in misery until the time which is appointed of God that the dead shall come forth and be reunited both soul and body and be brought to stand before God and be judged according to their works. Yea, this bringeth about the restoration of those things of which has been spoken by the mouths of the holy of the prophets. The soul shall be restored to the body and the body to the soul. Yea, and every limb and joint shall be restored to its body. Yea, even a hair of the head shall not be lost, but all things shall be restored to their proper and perfect frame. Now, from these verses, we take away that the situation, the state that we just talked about, that state of if you're righteous, it'll be peace and rest. And if you were wicked, uh, it will be uh, in anticipation and of awful and fearful looking towards the wrath of God. Uh, that state is only temporary. And, and it's a space between death and the resurrection. Um, and, and eventually the resurrection will come in which we will receive our permanent award uh, based upon the way in which we lived our lives. And so 
it's a, so it's important to think that the I think the often the 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 uh, characterized ideas of heaven and hell are in you know where you know if you lived righteously you go to heaven and everything is restful and peaceful and everything is wonderful and if you go to hell it's fire and brimstone you know those cartoonized those uh, you know those very cliche notions of heaven and hell uh, to some degrees are very real but they're only temporary and it's only until uh, the resurrection that's not the eventual and eternal state but they're only for a brief time and that is before our body and our soul are reunited and we're brought before the judgment seat of God. Now we go to chapter 41, where Alma discusses, uh, you know, in 40, he's discussed this, this brief time between death and the resurrection. And now with 41 and into 42, he talks more about the resurrection and the permanent uh, situation that we will all find ourselves in based upon the choices that we make. So to chapter 41, start with verses 2 and 3. I say unto thee, my son, that the plan of restoration is requisite with the justice of God, for it is requisite that all things should be restored to their proper order. Behold, it is requisite and just, according to the power and resurrection of Christ, that the soul of man should be restored to its body, and that every part of the body should be restored to itself. And it is requisite with the justice of God, that men should be judged according to their works. And if their works were good in this life and the desires of their hearts were good, that they also at that last day be restored unto that which is good. So the resurrection can be thought of as a restoration of things back to the way that they are supposed to be. And I love this because it's such a simple idea that the resurrection is designed, it's not a harsh judgment where God sits up there and you know, thinks of, you know, if, if you're, you know, crossed some mythical line, then you get heaven for the rest of your life. And if you came short of that mythical line, then it's hell for the rest of your life. It's, it's much simpler than that. If you're a good person, you're going to have goodness restored unto you. If you're a bad person, then badness is going to be restored unto you. It's putting things in the state in which they belong. That's what the resurrection is intended to do. And it's very, very simple. And in verse 2, he talks about how we're going to, uh, you know, restore the soul of man shall be restored to its body and every part of the body should be restored to itself. This idea of a restoration, everything comes back to the way it's supposed to be. If you know, some part of your body didn't, pro didn't function properly, didn't fu function the way in which it was supposed to, then that is going to be fixed in the resurrection. Your body, when you receive it, when it's restored to your soul, will function in the way in which it was intended to function, in which it was our Heavenly Father gave us these bodies in order to facilitate uh, our spirits so that they can uh, carry out uh, their agency and carry out their wills, the bodies that we receive after resurrection will be perfected and will enable us to perfectly carry out our will so that we can be restored to that will so that if we are good and if our intention was to do good, we will receive a body that allows us to do good. And if our intentions were to do wrong, we will receive a body that is appropriate for someone whose intentions were to do wrong and they will continue to carry out uh, those, uh, those, those 
those desires of their hearts, whether it is for good or whether it is for evil. Uh, verses four and six, four through six. And if their works are evil, they shall be restored unto them for evil. Therefore, all things shall be restored to their proper order. Everything's to its natural frame. Mortality raised to immortality, corruption to incorruption, raised to endless happiness to inherit the kingdom of God, or to endless misery to inherit the kingdom of the devil. The one on the one hand and the other on the other. The one raised to happiness according to his desires of happiness, or good according to his desires of good and the other to evil according to his desires of evil. For as he has desired to do evil all the day long, even so shall he have his reward of evil when the night cometh. And so it is on the other hand, if he hath repented of his sins and desired righteousness until the end of his days, even so he shall be rewarded unto righteousness. So very simple. If we desire to do good and follow God's plan for happiness, that is what we will be restored to when we are resurrected. It is a restoration. It is putting things in their proper order. It is putting us in the situation in which we desire to be. Uh, and I think for those of us that strive to follow the Savior's commandments and so frequently fall short, this should be a wonderful comfort to us. Because if we desire to do what is right, if we, but sometimes the flesh is weak, the, the mind is willing, but the flesh is weak, as it is said. If that is our situation, and I think it probably is for everyone that desires to follow Christ, what we can look forward to in the resurrection, no longer will our flesh be weak, but we will be able to carry out the good intentions of our hearts perfectly. If our goal is to do good when we are resurrected, we will be rewarded with greater opportunities to do greater good. And that is what we have to look forward to. We will not be limited by the struggles of our mortal bodies, but we will receive immortal bodies that are uh, empowered with the ability to do endless good. And that is what our perfected resurrected bodies will allow us to do. And that is what the restoration uh, that is the resurrection makes possible, makes it possible for us to do, to carry out the true intentions of our hearts. Now, that means the true intentions of our hearts better be good. Because if we are only keeping the commandments for reasons other than because we love God and we desire to do what is right, if we are keeping the commandments because we care how others view us uh, because we are expecting some type of material reward. If we're doing it be, uh, you know, for whatever reason we're keeping the commandments, simply maybe we're just mindlessly doing it because that is the cultural expectation or the familial uh, expectation that's being imposed upon us. Well, when we're resurrected and we're restored to that natural order, uh, I think it's very questionable as to whether or not those that keep the commandments for purposes other than because they are good and they desire to do good upon the resurrection, whether or not they will be restored to the same situation as someone who keeps the commandments simply because they love God and desire to do good. So on the one hand, this promise of the restoration uh, that is with the resurrection 
now should fill us with great joy and excitement that finally we'll be able to do all the good that we want to do. But at the same time, it's also a very stern warning to each of us that we had better make sure that our desires are for good because we are going to be restored to whatever it is our desires are. And if our desires are something other than to do good and to do good for goodness sake for the right reasons, when we are resurrected, we might not be restored to what we hope we will be restored to because there wouldn't be a restoration. If you're not keeping the commandments for the right reasons, how could God restore you to those right reasons, to that perfect situation in which you can carry out good? The purpose of the resurrection is to put us in our natural state where we naturally belong. Verses 10 and 11. Do not suppose because it has been spoken concerning restoration that ye shall be restored from sin to happiness. Behold, I say unto you, wickedness never was happiness. And now, my son, all men that are in a state of nature, or I would say in a carnal state, are in the gall of bitterness and in the bonds of iniquity. They are without God in the world, and they have gone contrary to the nature of God. Therefore, they are in a state contrary to the nature of happiness. Alma is very clear here that sin is opposed to and never leads to happiness. Now, what exactly is sin? What is this sin that doesn't lead to happiness? Because if you look at the world around you, it seems like many people are committing sins and many people are happy. And sometimes it appears that they're happy because of the sins that they're committing. Um, but Alma is very clear here that wickedness or sinning is not happiness. It is not compatible with the plan of happiness that our Heavenly Father has prepared for us. And that's because that plan of happiness requires us to be progressing. It requires us to be improving in order to fulfill the purpose for which God has created us. And that purpose is that we can become like Him. We can become like our Heavenly Parents. We can return to their presence and progress and grow eternally and become and inherit everything that they have. That is what our Heavenly Father intends for us. And if we are not living up to that potential, if we are not spending our time in this life preparing for that, we will not be ready. We will not be able to inherit it. It cannot be restored to us because it is not who we are. Uh, and so when we are not focused upon the things of God, when we are not using our time to draw closer to God, living up to the uh, expectation and the potential and the privileges that he has given to us, then how can we be happy in doing that? We might be happy for a time here, but eventually that will not lead us to happiness because it will not lead us, put us in a position where we can fulfill the plan that our heavenly parents have put us here on this earth in order to fulfill. So God gives us commandments to help us do what we are supposed to do. And as we turn to God and strive to keep his commandments, that is the only way that we can fulfill the plan of happiness and live up to the expectations and the privileges that we have as children of heavenly parents. Verses 13 and 14. Oh, my son, this is not the case, but the meaning of the word restoration is to bring back again evil for evil or carnal for carnal or devilish for devilish, good for that which is good, righteous for that which is righteous, just for that which is just, merciful for that which is merciful. Therefore, my son, see that 
you are merciful unto your brethren. Deal justly, judge righteously, and do good continually. And if you do all these things, then shall you receive your reward. Yea, ye shall have mercy restored unto you again. Ye shall have justice restored unto you again. Ye shall have righteous judgment restored unto you again. And ye shall have good rewarded unto you again. So if we want to receive mercy, we must be merciful. If we want justice restored unto us, we must be just. If we want a righteous judgment, we must judge righteously. And if we want a good reward, we must do and we must be good. Again, very simple notion of the restoration that Alma puts forward. And I think it's so beautiful and so powerful. The resurrection is a restoration. The whole purpose is to bring people back into the state that they are intended to be in, into their natural state. If you're a good person, your natural state will be good. If you are righteous, and if you do, if you exercise uh, righteous judgment, then you will be judged righteously. Uh, but if you, on the other hand, you do evil, then you will have evil restored unto you. Uh, very, very simple, very, very clear, yet very, very powerful. Uh, and its ramifications are enormous. Again, that means that we had better be good people. We had be better be doing the right thing and doing it for the right reasons if we want to be restored unto that goodness that we are anticipating. Now we move to chapter 42, his final chapter. And, and it starts with uh, a concern that Corianton has that is echoed by so many people today. Uh, verse 1. And now, my son, I perceive there is somewhat more which doth worry your mind, which ye cannot understand, which is concerning the justice of God and the punishment of the sinner. For ye do try to suppose that it is injustice that the sinner should be consigned to a state of misery. You know, how often do we hear today the notion that a loving God could not punish other people? Or the, the bad things that happen or evidence that a God is not there? Or that, that if God really loves us, there, there couldn't be any type of punishment and therefore we don't have to worry about hell or keeping the commandments or, or doing what God tells us to. Because if there is a God, he will love us and he'll, he'll put us uh, in a place that will make us happy. And Alma's going to speak directly to this because Corianton is getting caught up in this notion. If God loves us, how could he possibly punish someone that doesn't keep the commandments? And here Alma gets into some beautiful discussions of the tree of life. And Alma begins by, or sorry, of the plan of salvation. And Alma begins by reminding him that after the fall, Adam and Eve left the presence of God and cherubim and a flaming sword were placed so that they could not partake of the tree of life. It's important to remember that in the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. There was the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which they, were, which they had partaken of in violation of God's instructions. And then there was the tree of life. And once they had partaken of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they could, not, they could no longer partake of that tree of life. And so God placed cherubim and a flaming sword to make sure that they could not. And why is it that they couldn't do that? Let's read verses 4 and 5. 
And thus we see that there was a time granted unto man to repent, yea, a probationary state, a time to repent and serve God. For behold, if Adam had put forth his hand immediately and partaken of the tree of life, he would have lived forever according to the word of God, having no space for repentance. Yea, and also the word of God would have been void and the great plan of salvation would have been frustrated. So God did this so that Adam and Eve and we, his children, would have time to repent. That we would have time to turn to God, to prepare ourselves before we go to the tree of life. Because the tree of life is the presence of God. If you recall in, uh, in, in Lehi and Nephi's vision of the tree of life, there was a long journey that people had to go through before they arrived at the tree. And if you recall, that tree was symbolic of Jesus Christ. And the fruits of that tree was the atonement. And so before we can return to the presence of God, before we can return to Christ, before we can stand before God in order to be judged, we need a time to prepare for that. We need to go on that journey to get to the tree because it is on that journey that we prepare ourselves, that we enter into covenants with Christ, that we can repent of our sins, that we can grow and improve ourselves so that when we finally get to the tree of life, when we are finally brought back into the presence of God, we are not standing there completely exposed because of the sins that we have committed. But we have Jesus Christ and his atonement to cover our sins. We can bring about the plan of mercy to, to combat, to complement uh, the, the power of justice that is undeniable. And that is what we will read about in the rest of chapters of this chapter 42. But it's essential to remember uh, that it all started in, with this beautiful uh, story of Adam and Eve uh, partaking of the fruit, falling and, and being cast out of the presence of God, and they could not return to the presence of God. God plays cherubim and a flaming sword there in order to protect them. We are here for a purpose, and that purpose is to prepare ourselves to return to the presence of God, and we cannot uh, be in a state where we are ready to return to God's presence other than through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Verse 7. And now ye see by this that our first parents were cut off both temporarily and spiritually from the presence of the Lord. And thus we see that they became subjects to follow after their own will. So Adam and Eve and us as well, we are right now cut off from the presence of God in two very important ways. First is that we are literally separated from God right now, physically separated from him. We are here on this mortal earth. God is in his heaven. We are separated from him and there is no way for us right now to get back to his presence on our own. And the only way that we can leave this mortal earth is through our spirit and our body being separated through death. Death, therefore, becomes inevitable. It becomes a necessary step that we all must go through in order to return to the presence of God. The other way that we are separated from God is spiritually, and that is because of the sins that we, are, that we commit. Now, because we are separated from God, both physically and spiritually, 
we're left here on our own and we have our agency. We can follow after our own will, as Alma says in verse seven. We have agency to do what we want to do because we don't have God right next to us, leading us and guiding us in every step of the way. And that is why we are here. We are here to exercise our agency. We are here to see whether or not we are truly good, whether or not while we are separated from God, what our actions will be. Are we the type that is going to choose good so that when we are resurrected, we can have good restored to us? Or are we the type that will not choose good, that will choose wickedness, that will choose other than to progress and to prepare ourselves to return to the presence of God? But that is kind of the crux of the whole matter. We are here separated from God physically and spiritually. Therefore, we have our agency. And the whole purpose of us being here is to see how we will use and exercise that agency. Verse 12. And now there is no means to reclaim men from this fallen state which man had brought upon himself because of his own disobedience. So critically important to remember, we're stuck here separated from God and we cannot get back on our own. We need help. Verse 13. Therefore, according to justice, the plan of redemption could not be brought about only on conditions of repentance of men in this probationary state, yea, this preparatory state. For except it were for these conditions, mercy could not take effect, except it should destroy the work of justice. Now the work of justice could not be destroyed. If so, God would cease to be God. And this is what Alma is trying to teach his son. Because remember, his question is, why is it just for those who commit sins to be punished? And Alma's message is, because they're separated from God. And the only way to overcome that separation, both physically and spiritually, is through the process of repentance and preparation. That is the whole purpose of the plan of salvation, so that we can exercise our agency to choose good, to repent, and we have a means of returning to the presence of God. I sometimes like to think of the plan of salvation in a similar way in which I send my kids to school every morning, especially when uh, they take the school bus. I don't want my kids at home all day because they will be limited in their ability and the things that they can learn. I want them to leave my presence. I want them to go to school. I want them to get an education. They need to interact with other people so that they can develop and, and learn and have the experiences that they need to in, order to in order to grow. But I don't want them to stay at school forever. But while they're at school, they have no way of getting home by themselves. So thank goodness that there is a school bus, that the school has prepared a method for my children to return from the school back to my presence. And in some way, I think that's similar to the plan of salvation. God sends us here to be educated, but he doesn't intend, us for, intend for us to stay here forever. There has to be a way for us to get home. And God has prepared that way, and that way is through repentance and through faith on Jesus Christ. But if we do not choose to accept that way, how could we get home? How could we get back to the presence of God and how could we enjoy that presence forever, especially as we anticipate a resurrection, which is a restoration in which we will be put back into our natural state. All of these things tie together so beautifully to form this plan of salvation. But again, it's critical to realize that 
uh, we can only be redeemed from this separation through repentance. Otherwise, mercy cannot take effect. It is repentance that brings about mercy, that makes mercy operative in the plan of salvation. And if we do not exercise our agency to repent, to call upon Jesus Christ, and to uh, exercise the power of that atonement, we're stuck because we're going to be relying on ourselves. And there's no way we can get back to the presence of God and be restored to righteousness without mercy, without being righteous ourselves, And that only happens through repentance. Verse 15, And now the plan of mercy could not be brought about, except an atonement should be made. Therefore God himself atoneth for the sins of the world, to bring about the plan of mercy, to appease the demands of justice, that God might be a perfect, just God, and a merciful God also. Mercy cannot be brought about, except for an atonement by God himself. It is the atonement of Jesus Christ that brings about the plan of mercy, that makes mercy operative. So it is the atonement that unlocks the gate to mercy, that makes it so mercy is even an option. And then it becomes our responsibility to tap into that mercy through repentance. But mercy, again, is not even possible except an atonement should be made by God himself. And that, of course, is the mission of Jesus Christ and why he came down. Verses 23 through 24. But God ceaseth not to be God, and mercy claimeth the penitent, and mercy cometh because of the atonement. And the atonement bringeth to pass the resurrection of the dead, and the resurrection of the dead bringeth back men into the presence of God. And thus they are restored into his presence to be judged according to their works, according to the law and justice. For behold, justice exerciseth all his demands, and all mercy claimeth, and also mercy claimeth all which is her own, and thus none but the truly penitent are saved. I love these few verses because they so beautifully sum up everything that Alma has been trying to teach his son. Remember, his son's confusion is about the plan of salvation. Why is it that if we sin, we are, it's impossible for us to return to the presence of God? Why can't God just say, I know you committed a little sin, but forget about it. Come and stay with me anyway. That's not the plan of salvation. And Alma teaches here so succinctly. Verse 23 sums it up so well. Mercy claimeth the penitent. In other words, you have to repent if you're going to exercise mercy. And mercy cometh because of the atonement. And the atonement brings about the resurrection of the dead. And so because of the atonement, so the atonement does two things. One, it unlocks mercy. Two, it unlocks the power of the resurrection. And the resurrection of the dead bringeth back men into the presence of God. And thus they are restored into his presence to be judged according to their works. So the, the atonement unlocks the gate of mercy. And it also makes the resurrection possible. And the resurrection is a restoration. And when we are restored, we are brought back into the presence of God to be judged according to who we are, according to the type of person that we are, according to what we seek after. If we seek after good, then we are restored to good. I love verse 24 as well. And 
look at it carefully. Justice exerciseth all his demands, and also mercy claimeth all which is her own. So we have these ideas of justice and mercy. And it's interesting that Alma here gave justice a masculine while he gave mercy. He, he said mercy is a feminine. And, and I think this is beautiful and powerful because as you know, one who's lived in, in Asia for a long time, I'm so moved by the concept of uh, yin and yang, uh, this idea the, of the, the, the masculine uh, and the feminine. The yin is the feminine. It is the dark. It represents uh, the moon. Uh, it represents, uh, according to Dr. Jordan Peterson, it represents uh, chaos. Uh, it represents love. And here it represents mercy. Well, on the other hand, you have the masculine uh, yang, as it's called in Chinese, and it represents light, and it represents order, and it represents power, and it represents those things that are, that are hard as opposed to the soft. And we just have these two complementary, uh, we, we have these complementary ideas, these complementary opposites that I think is so powerful, and both of them are necessary for perfection and completeness. And the yin and the yang fit together purposely, uh, fit together perfectly to create one complete whole. And justice and mercy operate in the exact same way. And what is it that ties these two, this masculine and feminine, this yin and this yang, this justice and mercy, what is it that ties them together? It is the atonement of Jesus Christ. It is the at one mint that takes these two, that takes these opposites, the yin and the yang, the male and the female, the husband and the wife, justice and mercy, us and God, and brings them all together in one complete, perfect package. That's what the at one mint or the atonement of Jesus Christ does. It brings everything together. It restores everything into their natural order, creating perfection, creating completeness, putting us in the place in which we are intended to be, making it possible so that we can be restored to the presence of our heavenly parents so that we can grow and progress and become like them. Beautiful, powerful ideas taught by Alma about the plan of salvation and about the role of Jesus Christ in restoring and bringing together justice and mercy. Verse 29, And now, my son, I desire that ye should let these things trouble you no more, and only let your sins trouble you, with that trouble which shall bring you down unto repentance. So Alma's final message to his son is, Son, I love you. I know there's some difficult things here. I know there's some things that you don't understand. But don't worry and don't focus on the things that you don't understand. Focus on yourself. Focus on your own actions. Repent of those mistakes that you make. Trust the plan of salvation that it can be operative in your life. That it can restore you to the place where you are to be. It will put you in the situation where God intends you to be, which is back in his presence, back in the presence of our heavenly parents to be with them and to be with our families forever. So don't worry about the little details that you might not be able to understand. 
worry about your own actions, go about doing good, serving others, calling upon Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins, trusting that as you do so, you will have good restored for good, mercy restored for your mercy, justice restored for the just way in which you treat other people, knowing that as you do so, the plan of salvation, the plan of mercy, the plan of happiness can be operative in your life. Repent of your sins, call upon Christ, and he will make it so that you can return to the presence of God and all things can be brought back together through atonement to their proper order, to the way that they are supposed to be. Beautiful, powerful teachings by Alma, by a loving father to his son. And I hope that we will all repent, call upon God, that the plan of mercy, the plan of happiness, the plan of righteousness, the plan of salvation can be operative in our lives, leading us each back to the presence of God. And I do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.